The following is a message by Dr. Howell Jones from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. Well, before us this morning, as you know, is the third chapter of the book of Genesis. We're going to be considering the first verse of that chapter this morning. Prior to reading it, I want to read some verses from Genesis chapter 1 by way of background to it. Let us hear the word of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 24, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. May he bless to us his word. In the English Standard Version text, this opening verse of Genesis chapter 3 is printed by itself as if it were a paragraph on its own. And that is helpful because it highlights it and should prevent us from passing over it merely as the prelude to what follows. There's something in it that's so important that we ought to pause with it. And, of course, there's something very unexpected in it, in the light of all that has been recorded in the opening two chapters. If we did not know it, who would have expected Genesis 3.1 after Genesis 1 and 2? Now, this statement in Genesis 3.1 opens with, the conjunction that, while it can mean and or but, is always translated now. And or but is, they're both too tame in view of what this statement contains and what it, of course, opens up before us. And in addition to that, uh, we have here the verb first, not the noun. That means that we have, I'm sorry, we don't have the verb first. We have the noun. And that change, of course, is for the purpose of emphasis. Something different is being placed before us. The opening statement of Genesis 3.1 is a bit like Genesis 1.1, in the beginning. Here, not the beginning of the worlds, but here is the beginning of sin. In our world. And then, of course, we have this word, 
that isn't found in Genesis 1 and 2, that's translated serpent but really means snake. It's not found in that portion of Genesis 1 which records how God created creeping things to go upon the ground. Here it is for the first time. And it has the definite article. As if there were only one. Whereas, of course, it was but one of its kind, as Genesis 1.24 informs us. But there is a serpent that is to be noted. And Moses draws attention to it in this way. That's what he's highlighting. Now, the serpent was more crafty or more subtle than any other beast of the field which the Lord God had made. What is he saying about this serpent? Well, of course, he's saying something natural about it, isn't he? Verse 1 indicates that it's part of the creation of God, part of the kind or the genus, the beasts of the earth. In terms of origin, beast of the field in terms of its habitat and location. It's not a symbol then. It's as much a reality as anything else that God made. And being made by Jehovah God, it was good. Made according to his design and answering his design. Made for his pleasure and for his purpose, as was everything else. But this word that's translated in the ESV, crafty, is a difficult term to translate. And sometimes commentators avoid the problem and draw attention to the fact that the Hebrew word is similar to the word for naked, which we have at the end of Genesis 2, verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Later on, of course, as a result of the activity of this snake, there's going to be a nakedness that will generate and be expressive of shame. And that's perfectly true. But doesn't it evade the question a little as to what this term means? We need a word that fits the kind uh, that this animal was. And we need a term that does not query the goodness of God in bringing it into being. So perhaps the English Standard Version, more crafty, says a little too much. Perhaps clever is a little better, but we're talking about an animal. Clever? Well, be wise as serpents, the New Testament says, so who are we to quarrel? You remember that Agar, one of the wise men in the book of Proverbs, as he surveyed the created universe, he noted that there were four things that were wonderful that perplexed him, that he couldn't understand. And two of those belong to the animal world. There was the eagle in the sky and the serpent on a rock, perfectly fitted for their habitat and eye-catching, even breathtaking, in their movements. Here is something that creeps and doesn't slip off a rock, perhaps glistens in the sun. Adaptable then and attractive 
But I'm pushing the boat a little now, aren't I? But certainly in instinct and movement, perfectly suited to its environment and fitted for its purpose. Something natural then. Verse 1 indicates that. Now the serpent was more clever than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. But is that all? Is it just that here is something natural? Is there not an indication that here is something that goes beyond the natural and even into the realm of the supernatural? For one thing, as we've indicated, it's given a special name. I'm calling it he already. It's given a special name. And then a unique degree of whatever it was that it had is ascribed to it, even among its own kind. This serpent was more clever than any beast of the field. The most clever then of any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. But in addition to that, this word that we're having such difficulty with, subtle, clever, whatever, is only used of a person in the Old Testament apart from this one place. You'll not find it of an animal of any kind, land, sea, or air, throughout the Old Testament. It's always a person and the kind of cleverness, subtlety, craftiness that is predicated of the person is good or bad. So is there not a hint here? Before we go from Genesis 3.1 to Genesis 3.2, is there not a hint? In Genesis 3.1, a hint of a personality present. And the possibility of a personality of a bad kind. Here is a good snake being used by a bad serpent. Chameleon-like. Certainly, this serpent is where it ought not to be. It belongs to the field. And yet here it is in the garden of God. It's no longer in submission to man and woman. It's claiming an independence of them, a superiority over them. But we're anticipating ourselves, aren't we? Clearly, here is a creature that has left its appointed habitat and is not functioning according to given instinct. There's something different at work here. And in this verse, the problem of evil in the world begins to be highlighted and opened up. And, of course, the rest of Holy Writ has more to say on it. But still, ultimately, there's an element of mystery that remains in association with it. 
You see, if we put Genesis 3.1 alongside Genesis 1.1 with a question in our minds, how does evil come into the world? Well, don't we have to say something like this? It's not as a result of anything that was created on earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's begin with what was created on earth. Animals and man, male and female. Is evil the result of some frailty, some flaw in human createdness? Or some twist or some bias in human character? If that were the case, then the gospel would be a gospel of self-improvement. But it's not. Because that isn't how man, male and female, came from the hand of their creator. Made in the image and likeness of God. Not then as a result of anything created on earth. Nor as a result of anything in the God who made all things. In the beginning God made the heavens and the earth. There's no evil in him. He's holy and righteous and good. There is no evil that comes from him. He doesn't tempt anyone. He can't tempt anyone. So not as a result of anything created on earth. Nor as a result of anything inherent in God. What's left? There's only one thing left. As a result of something created in heaven. And that is what the scriptures tell us, isn't it? Is that old serpent. There's the devil and Satan. The rebel, the arch rebel. And we're given glimpses. Some information that point, which points in that direction. And there it is. And is it enough? Is it enough for you? Granted, there is so much that is not told us. But is what is told us enough? Is it not enough to show that if sin originated in the heavenlies, it's the most horrible thing on the face of the earth? Its power is something that should terrify us. It's not just a human misdemeanor. Here is something supernatural. Here is something that took its root within the realm of the heavens that God created. But if that's so, then isn't God to be blamed? He can't be exonerated, can he? Didn't he create things in heaven as on earth? Yes, he did. Does that include the old serpent Lucifer? Yes, it does. But not as he became. Well, didn't God know what would become of him? Yes, he did. And did he create him knowing that? Yes, he did. Then, 
God must be evil. More evil than Satan? No. 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 A thousand times no. How not so? Well, there's only one satisfactory answer. And it's more than enough for anyone who believes. And it should be more than enough for every unbeliever too. It's this. That before there was a plant, there was a plan. God knew what he was going to do. And this chapter that begins with now the serpent and goes on to now the sin goes on to now the seed and now the Savior. God, by his power and wisdom, brought everything into being in the space of six days and his glory shone through it all. And he knew it would be ruined and marred, blighted and become cursed. Why did he do it? In order to display something of himself that was greater than power and wisdom. Grace and mercy. Isn't that enough? All right, there are huge questions. Heaven will answer them. And it will take us eternity to understand them. But it's because he will to make his grace and mercy known. That he ordained all this to take place. And his glory is greater. Will be greater in redeemed sinners and in the new heavens and the new earth than ever it was as a result of his power and wisdom in the old one. Let us pray. Blessed God, we bow before thee. We are humbled before thy majesty. Thine infinity would be terrifying to us were it not for the fact that thou art infinitely gracious and merciful. And we thank thee, O God, for the one whom thou didst purpose to send from before the foundation of the world in order to redeem an innumerable company of sinners and restore a fallen world so perfectly that nothing that defiles will ever enter into it. Receive our thanks. Keep us humble. Receive our praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Copyright 2008, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way, and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this broadcast on our website is preferred.